0: Hello and welcome back. I'm Joe
1: and I'm TJ and you're listening to season five
0: of Focus Ed podcast where we cover all things education to help you lead better and grow faster by staying focused.
1: Focus Ed is a collaborative program of work with our partners from the Delaware Department of Education and Wilmington University.
0: We record each episode with a live audience and then blast them out to you from our website, theschoolhouse302.com,
1: iTunes, SoundCloud, and more. Don't forget to follow us at the schoolhouse 302com to learn more about when episodes are recorded and for more school leadership resources.
0: As always, we hope you enjoyed this episode of Focus Ed, and we can't wait to hear from you. Hello, everyone. And welcome to Focus Ed. Each episode of Focus Ed, we invite expert guests to join us. In this episode, we have Dr. Todd Cashin to discuss his work on how to dissent and defy effectively, especially as educational leaders. You know, when TJ first brought this and you, Todd, as a guest, I was nervous, especially as a superintendent. Insubordination is typically something that I discipline people for. We're going to look forward to this conversation. Real excited about it. TJ, why don't you tell our audience a bit more about Todd?
1: Sure thing, Joe. Thanks for that. Dr. Todd Cashton is a professor of psychology at George Mason University, a leading authority on well-being, psychological flexibility, curiosity, courage, and resilience. He has published over 250 peer-reviewed articles, and his work has been cited over 45,000 times. He's received the Distinguished Faculty Member of the Year Award from George Mason University and Distinguished Science. Award for early career contributions from the American Psychological Association. He's the author of Curious and the Upside of Your Dark Side and his latest book, The Art of Insubordination How to Dissent and Defy Effectively. Like Joe said, we're going to be talking about that tonight. His writing has appeared in the Harvard Business Review, the New York Times, National Geographic, Fast Company, among other publications, and his research is featured regularly in the media outlets such as The Atlantic, the New York Times, NPR, and Time Magazine. Get this though. He's a twin with twin girls, plus one more, and has plans to rapidly populate the world with great conversationalists. That's where we're going to start. We want to jump right in. We're super interested in hearing what you have to say about the need for insubordination in the first place and why you decided to write a book about how people should dissent and defy, especially in the workplace. We have a whole audience of people here and we do not want them to get in trouble when they get back to work. So let's tell them how to do it.
2: It's a great question. And um, it's nice to talk to educators because the reason that I wrote the book and chose the word is it has negative connotations. It's the notion of because of where You stand on a social hierarchy, you should not be speaking out of turn. And if you work in education, you're told wait till you get tenure. If you're in the government, you're told wait until you're in a senior position. If you're in the military, you're told wait till you have some, you know, some diamonds and some stripes on your uniform before you can speak. And what we know from the science is if you have principled reasons, you recognize that ideas and rules and norms are outdated, they're no longer working. And this is a great time in society. We're seeing this happen from young young people who are speaking out of turn is their descent of these insubordinates stimulates openness, divergent thinking, creativity, but we don't like it. It's very inefficient. And I think the real conversation is be about that trade-off is that it slows down decision-making. It makes meetings longer. You don't like them necessarily, but damn, if you want to make superior decisions, you want the dissenters in your mix. Todd,
0: you hit on a really critical point though that I want to, if we could just dig into a little further. And that's the whole idea about it's meaningful that this is principle. And in the book, you talk about this idea of principled insubordination, and you have a formula for it. Can you dig into that? Because I think that principled piece is what's key to your formula.
2: Oh, absolutely. There's no question. And you can choose any topic, and I'll tell you why they do or don't meet meet these criteria. So really, the formula is you have to have deviance, is that you are expressing ideas that do not conform with the status quo. And what we know is there is no American status quo. There's no Delaware status quo status quo. It is whatever system that you're involved in, your school district, the prison you're working in, the sports team that you're on. So there's some deviance there that goes on there. Then the other element in the numerator of this formula is, is there authenticity? Are you expressing these ideas because you realize that the group is going in the wrong direction, that the country is going in the wrong direction? But then there's a third part in this numerator, which is, are you doing this because you realize that the group's vitality, health, and longevity is at stake if it continues going down the same conformist route that is going on. This is why people speak out of turn. Because when a nonconformist has an idea, there's two questions that stop them from saying anything. First is, do I want to deal with the friction and punishment that comes from getting this attentional spotlight on me? And then two, how can I be seeing something that's true and pragmatic and helpful and nobody else is seeing it? And so this is why students don't speak up when they have an idea. And this is why a newcomer to an organization stays quiet, they self-silence their doubts because this is how the imposter syndrome operates with conformist thinking in a group where you're not getting ideas, which means you're not getting the good ideas, which means you are more stagnant than you think you are because you're not providing a platform for those people that are truly diverse, divergent, different from speaking their piece. And then what really keeps this dissenting, helpful dissenting view on the back seat where it's not being heard is the denominator of this equation, social pressure. And that is those people that take up airtime and slow things down and, and make hard change on other people where they now have to add to their tests. There is a push to stamp them out, to keep things nice and efficient, effective. I get out of the meeting in 30 minutes. I get home at five o'clock. I don't have to worry about things. I just clock in my 30 years and then I retire. Dissenters say there's a better way and I wanna offer it to you.
1: So considering that that diverse thinking is super important, I mean, the research is clear on that. When we have diversity at the table, when we bring diverse thinking to the table, we make better decisions. You're asking people to dissent along with that so that the decision-making is superior as you put it. What can leaders do? We're talking to leaders. This is a leadership podcast, um, specifically new leaders in the room. What can we do to create that platform? How do you make that open so that somebody doesn't have that imposter syndrome or think that their dissenting idea is just going to challenge the group and shut people down?
2: Well, let's step back for one second, just because I am like this evidence-based scientist. The research on diversity is not as clear cut as Harvard Business Review and every organization would like it to believe. It's actually very mixed. And the reason it's mixed is mostly is we are somewhat adequate at attracting and bringing in diverse characters. So choose your favorite demographic variable. We're not even focusing that much on personality variables. So we're not thinking about sensory processing sensitivity. We're not thinking about where people fall in terms of being ambiverts and introverts. We're not assessing for that in most HR situations. The reason that d- diversity leads to superior outcomes in terms of better decision-making, higher performance, and creativity is only if you have a system, a process where you extract those unique ideas. And because most organizations are only focusing on acquiring people, but those people that end up speaking know more or less than the same three people who look like me, white, middle-aged males, still eat up 80% of the airtime of the meetings. This is one of the reasons why diversity often has a very small correlation with positive outcomes. So it leads to a very obvious initial solution. What are you doing as a group to ensure that those people that are not the most socially powerful, that have the most social status and have the most homogenous look like everyone else in the room has an opportunity to speak? And one of the things that really is the best way to move the lever in groups, this is in classrooms, this is with administrators, this is with teachers, this is anywhere, is can you create a norm such that you explain each and every time that you meet. The goal is not to get along. The goal is not for all of us to feel good about ourselves. The goal is not for us to be unified in terms of our thinking. The goals are independent thinking, critical thinking, and autonomy. And so you make this clear is that we are going to reward and incentivize people to bring in their original thoughts bring in their disagreements, and we will work with the friction that arises. But because we don't clarify explicitly those norms, we fall back on what's conventional. And the conventional thing is the person who's the most socially attractive, interesting, likable, the person everyone wants to sit next to at lunch, the person that everybody wants to be their friend. Those people and the loud people speak first. And most leaders, tend, there's an absence of courage, a deficit in most organizations is they too want to hang out with the cool characters that are in that group. And so they don't shut them down. So it takes a modification of the group dynamics to make sure that the minorities of one, the single people get to speak and the opinions you don't want to hear are told. And one of the ways of doing that is collecting information before meetings happen. And then someone reveals the information, those ideas, but does not attach it to individuals. So you get a list of ideas on whatever topic you're talking about. No one knows who said it and you are just evaluating the merit of those ideas and later you could ask for clarification from the people that were the progenitors of those ideas.
0: Todd, I, I also want to maybe even I wouldn't say step back, maybe step to the side and look at this through the lens of the leader but and then also those in the organization. How does the leader get to a point? And if you could also for our audience, touch on your upbringing a little bit because you have shared and been very transparent in my opinion, vulnerable about even you being you know part of that new underrepresented community growing up how do we develop a lens to ensure that we are bringing this these individuals to the table hearing them and creating them norms I think that's hard to do when there are timelines we have to get things done so I hear what you're saying but how do you build that lens
2: you're bringing up a number of excellent points so one of the things that influences everything I'm saying is what is the actual time urgency to make a decision so we have fiscal budgets they have calendars and and there are dates that those that we know are coming. If we know those dates are coming, we have to have meetings that create a culture where constructive disagreement is allowed and minorities of ones are not stopped immediately because their views runs counter to the way tradition has been going. So in terms of leadership, one of the easier strategies to do is meet with people individually and make it very clear this is not a performance evaluation. The way to be a good group member is not to listen to the powerful, follow traditions, and do what has been done before, it is I brought you into this organization and this group because of your unique background, the things you've read, the people you've met, your own life history of positive and negative life events is unlike anyone else who's ever been in this group. I need your unique ideas and opinions, and they're not coming up in meetings. What can I do to get those ideas into the forefront, whether it's with the other group there or if there's another strategy you have? And when you start having those open-ended questions, you will figure, out exactly what the barriers are that are leading to self-silencing in your group. Self-silencing is happening in every single group. You have imposter syndrome happening in every single group and at every level. For you to figure it out, you start one-on-one privately. And just to flip that, as you were saying, flip the perspective. So now we get to the person that has the unorthodox idea and they're coming into a group. What is one of the best ways of doing it? The same way of a one-on-one approach. Figure out who's going to be your biggest detractor when you bring this up in the meeting. And what you want to do is you don't want a public battle, like a mixed martial arts octagon battle with your so-called nemesis. So use psychological jujitsu, your presumed expected nemesis one-on-one with no audience. And you let them know, listen, I respect your views, even though we diverge on everything, politically, socially, we're not like each other, but I come to you because I want you to tinker and improve my thinking before I do this reveal in front of the group. What's the benefit of doing this? One, they're not going to have to worry about choosing likability over your competent ideas because there's no audience. It's an audience of one. It's just you. Two, you just made them a collaborator. They moved from nemesis to now a co-creator of the thing you made. Three is when you get into that larger group, you get to announce them how they contributed to the improvement of your ideas, feed their ego, neutralize their doubts a little bit, and allow the ideas to have merit for themselves as opposed to letting relationship conflict interfere with what we really want, which is task disagreement. We want the disagreement about the issues, the topics, the decisions. We don't want relationship issues coming into play. So those one-on-one meetings are extremely helpful.
1: One thing I really like that you shared there, Todd, is some practical advice for leaders. Like I wrote this down as a quote, using this as language with people. I brought you into this organization because of your unique background. It empowers others to understand what they're voice does at the table and why they are there in the first place. And also this concept of making sure that people know that you respect their views, even though you might disagree on everything. I think that's important. It invites people to the table to be themselves and to share their ideas. And it creates open dialogue. I think that's really important that it's not about the relationship. It's about the topic. If you could talk to us though, about something from the book that you call the science behind transforming your thinking, because I think there's some folks who are going to hear this and say, okay, that sounds good. But how do I rethink my own structures, my own culture, my own perceptions to be able to do this better as a
2: leader? Yeah, I mean, one of the most important lessons from 50 years of psychology is from Albert Ellis on cognitive biases. And we all sort of know about this over the past three presidential elections. We hear the term confirmation bias. We hear the term motivated reasoning. But we really have to actually have this list ready so that you can actually not weaponize it, but be clear clear with yourself and with the group when these things arise. So what leads us to have this bias towards our viewpoint, our side, our small little faction of the group that happens there? You have this thing called conviction bias, which gets a little bit less airtime. And that's the notion that why would I feel so strongly about this issue if it wasn't true, if there wasn't evidence behind it? So we let the strength of our belief be an element that tells us that this is somehow true when the the Two things have nothing to do with each other. Then you have group bias, which is I know the characters who are part of my faction and what they think and I'm speaking for them. Now this happens a lot of times, especially when you're talking about demographics such as race, sex, age, sexual orientation. You'll often have an, a very unfortunate scenario in a group where this person is called upon because they are demographically diverse, which is a terrible way to behave in terms of group dynamics. You're tokenizing them. But let's Let's say that this happens. Let's say this you do this. You're asking them to speak on behalf of a heterogeneous group as if they all think the same. And we have a bias to think that people with our backgrounds think the same. It's one of these psychological barriers to getting all of the complexity and nuance about a topic into the room is having a demographic representative of a group as opposed to it's the ideas that's informed by their life history makes them a diverse individual, and sometimes you have surprises, and so I often get a lot of heat about this. I mean, you kind of teed me up on is that I grew up with a single mother. My dad walked out on us when I was two, and so I grew up in a ninety percent predominantly black neighborhood. And so I remember being at the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, and we were talking about how to fund schools that offer more creative ways of grading and creative ways of introducing critical thinking uh, into you know into the curriculum, emotion focusing on social emotion. Learning, emotional intelligence. And we were at a fire pit after a full day of seminars. And I was one of the only white people that were there. And they were talking about code switching. And I just listened for a while. And I said, I gotta let you know that you're describing my entire childhood. All the heads just wished over to me. Like, what are you talking about? And then I explained that it's really about to what degree do you not represent the majority of the subculture you're in? If you're a country music fan. With a bunch of metalheads, you're the minority. If you end up being in an entire neighborhood of you know two family households and you have the one household where there was a divorce you're in the minority if that comes up. And if you're at a swimming pool in a park and everyone knows how to swim except for you, you're in the minority. And so I think that the more that we become creative and receptive to the idea of there's numbers of ways where diverse ideas emerge and diverse people exist, the more that we move away from focusing on who is someone a representative of, and we focus on what individual ideas am I not getting because this person is not part of the group that I, often converse with. And so the leader should always be thinking, how do I get these diverse people into the room, the conversation, without calling on them? And then for the individuals that are diverse, you really have to be developing a coalition of who possibly can amplify your voice, not steal your idea, but be your spokesperson because they have power and status. So, temporarily allow them to introduce your ideas with your name attached to it. And there's a really cool research showing that when someone socially powerful in a group points out a minority or a dissenting person's ideas in the room and physically faces them and lets everyone know it's their idea, I'm just sharing it. Not only does the person with the dissenting view or the minority view end up being amplified and augmented in power, but the person who's doing the augmenting looks like this benevolent person and they look good as well. So it's like a win, win, win situation. The one who shares the idea gets the win. The one who amplifies the idea gets the win. And the group has a larger, diverse pool of ideas to make decisions. So the group wins. Uh,
0: That actually just made me think back to your earlier response regarding, you know, task disagreement versus relationship issues and the one-on-one and how that one-on-one you could really achieve what you Just said, and then amplify that voice if you are the leader, and really then lift that other individual. I I see that really going back to that conversation.
2: I'm speaking to a room full of teachers and administrators in schools. We all know that one of the best evidence-based strategies for dealing with kids who have conduct problems in the classroom is help them be a co-facilitator of whatever it's you're talking about. And so it's just taking that strategy and bring it to the adult level, which is if someone is so their con the conduct issue is that they are unwilling to share their unique vision and ideas with the room full of people. That's the conduct problem. It's not externalizing. It's internalizing, and in the same same way we want to bring them in as a co-facilitator and one of the ways that you get the group to put down their phones put their head up and actually pay attention is tell an effective narrative of why you are amplifying this idea and sometimes we miss this again it's another inefficiency in the system It takes 30 seconds for you to say, there's a reason that I wanted to break sure this idea gets some weight and attention in this room. And do make sure that you are actually amplifying those ideas that deserve consideration. They don't have to actually change the outcome. What you're interested in is, can I change the thinking process, the intelligence and the wisdom of the group? And in this way, it doesn't matter if it improved the final product. You are altering the culture every time that you do this.
0: Todd, if you don't mind, let's go down that student lane a little more and think about if we wanted to improve the student experience within schools? What would you want to see done?
2: So what I spend a lot of time thinking about and doing workshops on is how do you get an optimal group to function with a a heterogeneous number of people? So we have gotten really good at focusing on this thing called belonging, where you feel seen, you feel heard, and you feel as if you are a valued contributor. And if you were absent, that you would be missed. So we have this, it's it's built into, and we talk about diversity and inclusion it's built into that word inclusion that sense of belonging that happens there what we forget in this equation is that the optimally functioning group has two psychological needs that are satisfied this is the group one is belonging and one is distinctiveness now we've put too much we have overweighted belonging and spent insufficient time on this. And distinctiveness is the notion that there's unique ideas and unique upbringings for every child that's in a classroom. And so your goal, no matter what the topic, if we're talking about Spanish, And you want to figure out what sentences do we want to construct and work with so instead of just saying learning in spanish i have to go to the bathroom i'd like to eat some meat you're going to be focused asking people for their unique experiences and then turning into a platform will learn spanish through the prism of what makes a child unique and if you see a kid that feels as if they don't belong don't just make them fit in also you want to have a very visceral explicit reminder behaviorally that i care about you but not because i want you to fit in because i will change and this group will change As we figure out what is the matrix of strengths, values, interests that define who you are. And I don't think that we're doing sufficient amount of that, of of balancing these two worlds. And when I think about the focus on diversity, I really think that we are really trying to figure out too much how to put shove people into the holes and slots that we already have, as opposed to, I have no idea what shape these holes are going to be once I bring you and learn about you and figure out and get your perspective, which is a precursor, taking your perspective.
1: It's fascinating. Joe and I are actually working on a concept right now where the teacher models that, that a sense of belonging comes from maybe a distinctiveness in the character of the teacher, instead of being a vanilla person who meets the needs of everyone in front of the room, actually being more ourselves in front of kids so that they see it's okay to be themselves.
2: Right. So, and every kid loves this. Like they want to know. So like, for example, my youngest daughter is now in sixth grade. One of the teachers was a mixed martial arts fighter. There was even a movie about this of a teacher who was a mixed martial arts fighter and making money for the school district. And that's his background. And he leads with that. He does a good job of making sure it's not masculine base, where it's not like attracting the boys and not the girls. It's that I want to throw up before I go into this octagon challenges. It is terrifying. It's anxiety provoking. But that story, that background that he had, of being a mixed martial arts fighter on top of being a teacher makes him so interesting that here I am talking to him about Into Your Room. And every teacher has a story about some skill, hobby, interest that really defines them. And it's not about, you know, being fully authentic because we can't bring our full selves into the workplace. And every business article that talks about is talking nonsense. You shouldn't talk about if you're separating from your romantic partner and you shouldn't be talking about if you have problems with your kid in terms of disciplinary, disciplining them. If you were socially awkward and introverted when you were in elementary school and you had public speaking anxiety like i did and i used to drop college classes when i found out that there was a component where an oral report was a good percentage of the grade it provides such great fodder for students When I start talking about the science of social anxiety. And so I have students that come in afterwards, like, wait a second. There's no way that you used to have public speaking anxiety because I saw a video of you in front of 75,000 people. I say, yeah. And tell you what, ask me in front of the class and the next class. And I'll explain and deconstruct how I got from there to here. It wasn't easy. It wasn't short. And without those reveals, you don't get exactly what you said. You don't get the sufficient combination of belonging and unique personality profile that makes every kid in the room. You open the door not for replicants just to say, hey, I I have public speaking anxiety too. You have kids that say, hey, I don't have public speaking anxiety, but I used to have an eating disorder problem that happens there. And it opens this portal where I then can ask a question, not to be their therapist, to say, I'm curious. As someone who went through that because you used the past tense, I'm wondering how that helped you grow as a person. So I moved from potentially a therapy session to an option of what did you learn? What did you learn? And how did this make you, you? And that's a conversation a teacher can have with no psychology background whatsoever, because you don't want to be the therapist for every kid, because that'll be five extra hours of your day. But you do want to open up the uniqueness and the unique personality matrix that every kid has, because that's when they feel like, you know what, you see me, you don't just see someone who's another person that wants to fit in, but also another person that stands out and is amazing because of this potential that exists because of what makes me different from other people, not what makes me similar.
1: It's like they're not necessarily needing to relate to us in the classroom. They need to learn to relate more to themselves. And that's the point about belonging. They feel a sense of belonging and they feel a sense of their uniqueness being okay. And I think the teacher can model that. Yeah, that's, that's a project that we're working on and that just struck me when you were saying that because it makes a lot of sense, especially for classroom teachers, but also for school leaders. As we wrap up a little bit here, Todd, we want to be respectful of your time. Our audience loves resources. So they're going to love hearing from you. They're going to pick up your books. We're going to give away 10 books here in just a minute for our live audience. But for any listener, for the podcast, any resources, people to follow, places to go that you would say, here's where the
2: learners are. That's a big question. I mean, one thing is, this is one of the reasons I created a newsletter. So you can subscribe to it. It's free, provoked. As soon as you go on toddcash.com, you'll find it. And I often have at the end of every newsletter, additional or extra curiosities. And I'll reveal podcasts that I found fascinating, books, particularly nonfiction that I found interesting. And just as you're saying, there are a lot of amazing thinkers that have not been on the TED stage, do not have a best-selling book, don't have a huge consulting company. We shouldn't conflate your status in the world on LinkedIn, on a social media, like on a New York Times bestseller, as that you're the most intelligent person in the room. I mean, we all know this. We all have incredibly smart, wise people in our social networks that are not well known. And so I try to live this work. It is incumbent on me to amplify these voices that are incredibly interesting but they're not Angela Duckworth they're not Adam Grant they're not Brene Brown and if you notice and this comes from Dean Simonton's research is we often only societally have room for two to three people that represent a domain and this has happened over the course of history if I asked you who is the origin of psychology in terms of the purveyors you would say Sigmund Freud you might say Carl Jung and maybe you'll say you know the founder of cognitive therapy you're talking about Aaron back But, you know, you have, uh, you know, Carl Rogers, you have all these amazing psychologists that exist on the periphery of fame that have amazing ideas that no one's ever seen. The person that influenced me the most is someone I bet you no one in this room has heard of, Daniel Berlin, a psychologist from Canada. And he started studying curiosity and aesthetics, aesthetic beauty in the 1970s. And nobody listened to him in the 1970s. I remember buying his 1961 book on curiosity and reading that as a grad student. I was like, oh, my God how is nobody talking about Daniel Berlin? And so I think if we really care about diverse ideas and trying to create the most utopian society possible, starting with our micro culture, our classroom, our household, it is to find those original voices and to share them. And so I love doing it in my newsletter and, you know, and outlets like this, like, thanks for bringing me on this podcast so I can share these things.
1: Yeah, no, it's awesome. Thank you for that. We're going to link to your newsletter in the show notes, and we'll blast that out for the audience listening. This has been absolutely fantastic. Is there anything else that you would like to add as a follow-up or a request of the audience? Any final words?
2: Off the top of my head, I'm just going to say that there is a benefit of conformity and it's why we do it. We try to be very efficient, not for ourselves, but to help other people use as minimal bodily resources as possible. We want them to use their brains as little as possible, their body as little as possible and just make things easy for them. This is why when people ask you how you're doing, the most common answer is good. It's because you don't want to burden somebody with the actual things that are going on in your life. As long as we acknowledge that there's a body budgeting issue, we're so concerned. We're too nice. We're too polite. We're so concerned about the budgeting of the energy and time of other people that we forget that part of being a great friend, a great educator, and a great contributor to society is not trying to worry about people's budget, but to actually stimulate people and stimulate ourselves with opportunities to grow as a person help other people grow. And it is an inefficiency, but you have to ask yourself, do you want to choose a 90 year life where you have the most attention, energy, and time at the end? Or do you want to be maximizing your potential, your creativity, and your opportunities for innovation? Because when we are the person that helps people budget constantly by conforming, we are also unfortunately minimizing creative and innovative potential. So I I encourage people to actually say the thing that they're actually thinking. Take the stand, take the friction because your future self is gonna appreciate it. In most cases, the worst case scenario ends up being a really interesting story of how you were rejected. It's
1: fantastic and it's a great place to end where we're challenging the status quo rather than encouraging people to conform. This has been fantastic, Todd. How about a virtual and live round of applause for Todd Cashin? As always, don't forget to follow the schoolhouse302.com for podcasts, blog posts, books to read, and more. We'll be back soon with another episode of Folkstead. Till then, stay focused.
0: Hey, leaders, before you go, one more announcement. We now have available for you our Candid and Compassionate Feedback Masterclass really because of high demand we are thrilled to offer this this is a course that we run live and in person all the time and leaders love it they learn to give feedback with skills that they can use right away including better praise to lift and celebrate your team it's now available in a virtual online format that you can take on your own self-paced from the comfort of your office or home
1: Here's what you'll get. There are 11 lessons with a focus on nine candor cancellations that we wrote in our Candid and Compassionate Feedback book. These are mistakes that leaders make that we don't want you to make anymore. We'll teach you models so that your feedback is meaningful, and we'll give you tools necessary to build the culture that you always wanted. Trust us, without these critical skills, you're not capitalizing on your own capacity to lead better and grow faster. Go to the site, schoolhouse 302com click on shop courses, add this course to your cart and start learning today.